This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. This particular incident, the life of Paul and Silas, that eventually got them imprisoned. So Acts 16, verse 16. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us. He brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. (coughs) Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks." title of our message today is, Are You a Troublemaker? Spiritually speaking, of course, in the best sense of the word. These men exceedingly trouble our city. We said this morning, and I cannot go over hardly any of what we said this morning other than this little bit. We said this morning that uh, this past few days, because a pastor spoke out against the religion of Islam, that all hell broke loose. And suddenly the whole nation was in a hubbub about such a statement. They called it trouble and making mischief. Apologies were demanded and people were insulted and all the rest of it. But note here these men, note who they troubled. They troubled the spirit world. Spirit of divination was cast out. They troubled the business world. Her masters were losing much profit. They troubled the civil world. Paul and Silas were hauled before the authorities. They troubled the legal world. Paul and Silas was before the magistrates. They troubled the religious world. These men being Jews exceedingly troubled our city. They troubled the multicultural, the multinational world. They teach things and customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or to observe. We also said that Jesus himself was far from that kind of shiny, soft, cuddly image that oftentimes we get about Jesus, that he wouldn't say boo to a goose, that he was so kind and gentle and compassionate and tender and soft-spoken that he would not offend anybody. I don't know where we got that. 
even a casual reading of the Gospels will show you that many times he did cause offense. And often he did challenge the conventions of the religion of his day. And he fronted the Pharisees again and again and again. And so with that backdrop in mind, I I want to look more about Christ tonight and how he challenged certain individuals and how he faced things. But let me first of all say that Jesus loved people. Wherever he met the poor and the sick and the broken and the tormented, he treated them with the utmost respect and dignity. He spoke kindly to them. He encouraged them. He brought hope to them. He was helpful in every possible way. And so he healed the sick. He delivered the tempted or tormented. He cleansed the lepers. He fed the poor and the needy. However, there was one group of people, the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders, the religious establishment. And most times, except with a few exceptions, and we'll look at some of them tonight, most times when he met them, he reserved for them the harshest, the most severe, uh, the most awful denunciations that ever fell from the lips of the master. You'll read that when he's facing the Pharisees. He rebuked them, he condemned them, he chided them. And in Matthew chapter 23, he actually pronounced eight woes upon them. Can you imagine that? Eight woes. Matthew chapter 23 is the last public (laughs) sermon that Jesus preached. And in that last public sermon he preached, it was his hardest, it was his harshest, it was his most severe because he was directing it against the Pharisees. In fact, let's just have a little glance at that. Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to the disciples saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Phylacteries was that little box with the scriptures in it, and they would see, you can see the Orthodox Jews today, with a a leather strap around their arm. And they deliberately made the straps bigger to draw more attention to themselves. So he, he, he draws attention to that. He says they enlarge the borders of their garments. Their garments had a tassel as a border, but they made the tassels even bigger so that everybody could see their piety, their outward show. They love the best places at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you're all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father. That doesn't mean your dad, it's not in a spiritual sense. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. 
Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Can you imagine Jesus standing in the crowd, everybody hearing this? Can you imagine what was going on in the hearts of these Pharisees? I'm sure they were absolutely livid. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to make one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits in it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and faith. And justice, mercy, and faith. These ought you have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Can you believe this is Jesus talking like this? See, this is not the Jesus that we generally think about, that somehow we have conjured up an image, that he would never speak this way to anybody. Because we're being told as Christians today, you dare not offend. You must not in any circumstance offend anybody. Well, Jesus didn't think that way. Of course, he was careful who he spoke this to. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, your witnesses against yourselves that you, the sons of those who murdered the prophets, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore I indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, scribes. Some of them you kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem, the one who killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. That's strong, isn't it? No mincing of words there. See, Jesus hated their hypocrisy and their phoniness. He hated their false show of piety. He hated their condescending attitude. He hated, above all, those laws and rituals that they put upon men and made their burdens heavy. The laws and rituals even God wouldn't have put on them. These were supposed to be the keepers of the truth. These were the experts of the law. These were supposed to be the men who brought spiritual health to the nation. And instead they were just bringing spiritual death to the nation. He had no sympathy for them whatsoever. He would not enter into any dialogue with them other than to challenge them. And as you saw, condemn them. He called them hypocrites. Play acting with religion. Whitewashed tombs. Bright and shiny on the outside full of rottenness on the inside. Brood of vipers, snakes in the grass, blind guides. Jesus wasn't very PC, was he? When it came to the religious establishment and how they were leading men and women astray and turning them into hell, he just took no prisoners whatsoever. Now, of course, we have to be careful who or what we denounce. Because Jesus was. These weren't naive and innocent men. These were leaders. These just wasn't the ordinary run of people. These were the leaders. These were the ones who should have known better but didn't. No wonder he's angry with them. These are the ones who never accepted Jesus. These are the ones who would not accept his deity. Is not this the carpenter's son? We know who he is. He's the carpenter's son. In fact, even worse than that, they said, we know where he gets his power. He gets it from Beelzebub, the prince of devils. That's why he can cast out demons. He's a drunkard. He's a wine-bibber. Every chance they got, they put him down. They denounced him. They wouldn't believe in him. They wouldn't accept him. No wonder Jesus had absolutely no sympathy. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was just a rabble-rouser with a messianic complex. And Christians, as far as they were concerned, well, they're just a deluded bunch of people. They would have to stamp out. And Saul of Tarsus was one of those who set out to stamp out as many Christians as he could until God got a hold of them. See, there was only one religion as far as they were concerned. That was Judaism. As far as they were concerned, God wasn't about to start another one. And he certainly wasn't going to start one with this itinerant preacher from Galilee of all places. No prophet comes from Galilee. And so, the battle lines were drawn. The engagements were taking place. The battle lines are still drawn today. Whether it's Islam, or Judaism, or Buddhism, or Shintoism, or Sikhism, or Taoism, or any other ism you care to mention, when it comes down to the person of Jesus, that's where the collision comes. 
no matter what we may think is good in those religions, when it comes down to the person of Jesus Christ, they do not accept him as the Son of God. None of them do. And there's the rub. So when Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth of my life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he drew an eternal line in the sand. And that line in the sand is still there to this day. Does Jesus love a Muslim? Does he love a Jew or a Buddhist or a Sikh or a Hindu? Of course he does. He died for them in Calvary. Same as he died for you and he died for me. All of us are sinners. Of course he loves them. But what he hates is what the religion does to them. And often what the religion does through them. That is an offense to Almighty God. And Jesus challenged it. He said it to his own people. You put burdens on people. You won't even lift a finger to help them. And yet you keep putting more burdens on them. He hated that. He despised that. So for Jesus to proclaim he was the only way to God, that puts Christianity on a collision course. And we're still on that collision course. And all of us, sooner or later, is going to meet that one head on. Maybe a family member, maybe somebody in school or somebody in work, but we'll meet it head on. And so he, when he wanted to be and when he needed to be, he could be very blunt. And he could say things that were very hard-hitting, as we just read there a moment ago. However, in spite of his frequent run-ins with the religious establishment, there was a few occasions, and just a few, when he didn't denounce them. When he showed pity and mercy. And the reason is, and we'll see in a moment, is because they came to him differently. They accepted him more than the others rejected him. And because they came with that humility of heart, he treated them entirely different. Think about this for a moment. Remember the rich young ruler? Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke 18. He comes to Jesus. Luke calls him a certain ruler. Matthew said he was young, and all of them said he was rich. He had great possessions. So here is this young, highly respected, very wealthy, very mannerly young man, and he comes to Jesus, and he's asking a very good question. What must I do to receive eternal life? And so he's not only respectful, but he actually kneels down in front of Jesus. And the Bible says in Mark 10, 21, that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And so... He treats him somewhat differently. He doesn't treat him harshly. He doesn't denounce him. But he wants to help him. And so he speaks the truth and love to him. 
And he gets right to the heart of this young man's problem. He mentions the law. He says, I've been doing that. He says, okay, sell all you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And the young man turned away and turned his back on the Savior. He cared more about his silver than he did about his Savior. And that was the heart of the issue, and Jesus knows every man's heart. So he put his finger on it, on the pulse of the problem. And the young man thought about it, and he thought to himself, do you know what? I have too much to lose. I've got great possessions. Jesus was just challenging him. I'm quite sure if the young man had said, Jesus, I'll do that. I'm quite sure Jesus said, you don't need to do that. I was just testing you. No, come follow me. But he didn't. He was a ruler. He was a religious ruler. Jairus, in Matthew 9, Mark 5, and Luke 8. Matthew and Mark says he was a ruler of the synagogue. So he had quite a position in his community within the synagogue. He was an Orthodox, died in the world Jew, loved his Judaism, was a frequent worshiper. He would probably be first in the synagogue and last out of the synagogue every Sabbath. He came in utter humility and he fell at Jesus' feet and begged him, come heal my daughter. His 12-year-old daughter was at the very point of death. Did Jesus denounce him? Did he speak harshly to him? No. He was tender. He was compassionate. He was loving. This was a big thing for this man to do. It took a lot of guts for him to do this. And Jesus knew that. This could have cost him his job in the synagogue. It could have cost him his relationship with his very family. But he came to Jesus humbly and said, Jesus... So therefore, he was accepting that Jesus could work miracles. And whatever that entailed or implied, he was accepting it. Come heal my daughter. Do you remember whenever Jesus went and how at the time they got there? Remember the little woman interrupted them on the way there? And the time he got there, his daughter had died. And those professional mourners come out and said, Don't trouble him any further. Your daughter's dead. And of course, his heart must have sunk. If only that wee woman hadn't interrupted Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and he says, Don't be afraid. Just believe. How gentle, how loving, how considerate, how compassionate, how merciful he was to Jairus. And of course, Jairus got his little daughter resurrected from the dead. And what a tremendous miracle that was. And so, not every religious ruler Jesus denounced. It depended how they accepted him, how they came to him. Let's have a look at another one. In John chapter 3,
is the well-known story of Nicodemus. But let's just have a little look here for a few moments. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So here was an out-and-out Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the official religious body that oversaw all religion in Israel. Uh, There were 70 of them plus the high priest. There were 71 in total. So any disputes or arguments religiously, they dealt with it. They had some civil powers, but mainly religious. So these were the creme de la creme. These were the top religious heads in Israel. And here's one of the top ones. Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, now, even for, even for this high Pharisee, a member of the elite class, even for him to acknowledge Jesus as rabbi, that in itself was a big thing. So that meant that this man, at least at the moment, secretly at least, admired Jesus, heard much about him, perhaps saw him in action, and secretly on the inside, he thought, you know, something about this man. Maybe he is the Messiah. Certainly a miracle worker. Maybe he is the Messiah. So he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he's acknowledging God is with him. Big thing. One of the very few of all of the Pharisees that ever acknowledged that God was with Jesus of Nazareth. They hated him with a passion. But this man was different. And so he, he, he comes humbly. He comes in a responsive way and he's saying all the right things. He's calling him rabbi. He's acknowledging his power and saying there's touch of God's upon your life. You've come from God. And all of that's good. But Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that may sound a little bit harsh. Here's this man coming, taking a big risk, sticking his neck way out there. He's coming to Jesus, he's making all the right noises, and Jesus wants to help this man. In order to help him, he's going to make him face the issue. And do you know, in our lives, sometimes the Lord can come to us and hit us with the Scripture to make us face the issue in our lives. And sometimes it's not very nice if you get a rebuke. Do you ever get rebuked? Do you ever get rebuked from the Lord? In my life over the years, I've had a few. And let me tell you, when he does, you know it but it's for our own good. We rebuke our children for their own good, don't we? So Jesus cut across all of that. He says, right, let's, get, let's cut to the chase here. 
Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In a sense, what Jesus is implying, Nicodemus, I know you're a religious leader. I know you're a keeper of the law. I know you're very smart and very intelligent. I know that you've trained in the way of the Pharisees. I know that you're top in that Sanhedrin circle. I know all of that, but you can't see the kingdom of God. You're blind to it. <laughs> that must have set him back on his heels. <laughs> but fair play to Nicodemus. He doesn't swell up like a big toad and say, how dare you treat me this way? Because these people were generally treated with great respect and fear. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, how can a man be born when he is old? So that implies that he, he's old. Uh, to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you, you generally were an elder even in age because you would have experience and maturity and so forth. You wouldn't be a novice. So he's thinking, you know, to be born again, to start all over again, to have a whole new life when you're old, how could you do that? You know, Sally's father is 96 years old. He's not well. He's not in hospital recently. And a few months ago, the doctor wouldn't let him drive and he lost his license. And we were glad. We were praying for that. For his own sake. As well as all the other road users. <laughs> but now he wants to get one of those mobile scooters. He's 96. And it's like talking to that mic stand. He just will not listen. Why? He's 96. He's done what he wanted all his life. Nobody's going to tell him what to do. I'm 96. I'm going to do what I want. And we laugh at that, but if we were 96, we'd probably be the same. The old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Well, this is what Nicodemus, how could, how could I be born again? Start all over again? How could I do that? I, I have, don't you know, I have trained for years to get into this position. You know how hard it is to become a member of the Sanhedrin? I, I mean, I've been doing this for years. I'm accepted. They love me. I mean, people in this country looks up to me, and you want me to begin all over again. You get in the picture? And you know, we're faced with that. We're faced with that issue too. Whenever we become born again, it's a whole new life. Things change. And no matter what we have in our past, things is going to change from that point. And we have to be prepared for a whole new way of living. Amen? Nicodemus says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time when his mother's woman be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is a work of the Spirit of God. Training's not going to do it. Tradition's not going to do it. Learning's not going to do it. This is a work of the Spirit of God in a man's heart. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
There's twice he's told him it. Because Jesus realized that religious people are very dense sometimes when it comes to real spiritual things. They just don't get it. And he wasn't getting it. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. All your law-keeping, all your rituals, Nicodemus, all of those works that you do is not going to cut it. It's not going to do. It's going to have to be of the Spirit of God. Nicodemus is absolutely flummoxed. What does he say? He answered and said to him, How can these things be? How is this possible? I don't understand. I don't get it. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Now, can I say, that is a rebuke. In any language, that is a rebuke. That is pricking his pride big time. I mean, that's bursting his balloon right there. You're a teacher in Israel, and you have no idea what I've just said to you. If somebody said something like that to you, would you not be offended? Or would you not blush? But fair play to Nicodemus. He didn't just strut off on a big hump. Now he did go away. But he doesn't, he wasn't angry at Jesus. He had a lot to think about, a lot to ponder in his heart. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. Ah, <laughs> there's another rebuke. Yes, he's interested in this man. Yes, he wants to, this man to receive new life. Yes, he wants him to be born again of the Spirit. But he's not letting him off the hook here. He says, we know what we're talking about. But he says, you don't receive our witness. And therein lies the problem. You're not really believing what I'm saying here. You're not receiving the witness here. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. There's that favorite, well-known, lovely, precious verse, verse 16 of John chapter 3, that we all know and that we could all recite in our sleep. But did you get the background to it? Jesus, in order to try to help this man, gives him an Old Testament illustration. If anybody should understand it, surely this man should understand this. And in a way, it's a rebuke. He talks about the serpent in the wilderness. Numbers 21. 
The Israelites in the wilderness was griping and groaning and moaning against God. They were sick, sore, and tired of all the manna that had enough of it. And so they gripe at Moses. They were doing, as we say, the man's head in. And God got angry with them and he sent a lot of serpents. They started to bite them. And then they run back to Moses and says, tell God to stop this. <laughs> We've learned our lesson. And God says, okay, Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it up in a pole, and everyone that looks up at it will be healed. And Jesus used that as a figure of him being lifted up, and everybody who looks at him will be saved. Even picks out an Old Testament illustration that in a way rebukes him because he's an Israelite and those Israelites were gurning against God and were angry at God. And he's identifying him with them. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, Nicodemus then goes off the scene. The next time you find him is in John chapter 7. Now what Jesus said to him and how Jesus challenged him must have really made him think. Because in John chapter 7, there's a whole big to-do within the Sanhedrin about this Jesus of Nazareth. They're going to do all kinds of things against him. And Nicodemus speaks up. He says, in effect, be very careful what you do. You shouldn't try this man without giving him a chance to speak for himself and so forth. You know what they did? They shouted him down. They shouted him down. And he kept quiet. Because his position was going to be at stake. If he had said any more, they might have kicked him out. And so he stood up, spoke up. Then when he was challenged, he sat down again. But he's still thinking. Certainly when he came to Jesus, he wasn't saved. But now he's thinking. The next time we see him is in John 19. And that's where him and Joseph of Arimathea, where they go to the tomb to take those precious ointments and to take care of the body of Jesus. And Joseph of Arimathea, like Nicodemus, had become secret disciples of Jesus. You notice how he came to Jesus in John 3 at night? Because he was scared. When they challenged him in the synagogue, when he challenged and they challenged him, he sat down, he was scared. But to go and ask for the body of Jesus and to deal with that, that took a lot of courage. That, that took him actually to, actually to stand up and say, do you know what? I follow this man. Even though he's dead, I'm going to treat that body with the utmost respect. I think he'd got it by then. But did you see how Jesus dealt with him? Even though he didn't shout at him, even though he didn't denounce him, but boy, he gave him the truth, didn't he? 
Bit by bit by bit by bit, he gave him the truth. Why? Because he loved him, cared about him, wanted him to come, wanted him to be born again. Let's look at one more situation. Jesus could, <laughs> he could say some hard things. In John chapter 6, first lot of verses up to verse 14, you see the feeding of the 5,000. Only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Then verse 15, therefore when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went into the sea, down to the sea, got into the boat, went over the sea towards Capernaum, and, one, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land where they were going. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? <laughs> Let's see what Jesus said. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You are seeking me for what you can get out of it for yourself. You're seeking me for carnal reasons. You're seeking me to get your bellies filled. And they were. He knows the heart of every man. Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, but not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now Jesus is trying to get them to get away from their carnal fleshly thoughts about themselves and their needs and their wants onto the most important thing, their eternal souls. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Now notice, notice here how he's constantly drawn them back to himself. To get the focus on him. Not the bread, not even the miracles, not the sign, but on him. Therefore they said to him, 
What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? (laughs) The audacity of these rascals. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're, they're trying to goad them into doing a miracle to make bread so they can get their bellies filled. That's what they're trying to do. And they're trying to corner them into doing that. They just can't get past their bellies. Excuse the bluntness of that statement. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. (laughs) And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Somehow in their heads, they were so set on getting physical bread, they missed the part where he said, God, the bread of God is he who came down from heaven. It's me. I'm the bread of life. But they're still thinking about ordinary bread. That's why they're talking about Moses and the manna. Lord, give us this bread always. <laughs> you see that bread? Here's what they're doing. You see that bread that you did yesterday to those people? Remember the bread and fishes? That miracle? Give that to us. Only give it to us always. Moses fed those people in the wilderness for 40 years with that bread. Give us that. We'll never have to buy groceries again. <laughs> we'll never have to go to Tesco's or Sainsbury's or M&S. Our table will be filled. Our cupboards will be filled continually. Yeah, I'm joking. That's what they were thinking. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but raise him up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Can you see? These are on two entirely different levels. Jesus is speaking completely and solely on the spiritual level. level. They're speaking completely and solely on the natural level, the flesh level. And then the Jews complained about him. And it went, by the way, when, when John particularly writes about the Jews, he's not just referring to the ordinary man on the street, he's referring to the, the leaders, the religious establishment, the elders. Then the Jews, they were in among the crowd. You know, everywhere that Jesus went, there was some of these guys in the crowd to see if they could bait him or catch him in his words. Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. 
Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Note this, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give him is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. <laughs> this is a tough statement for them. The Jews, therefore, quarreling among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat. Ah. Totally and utterly missed the point completely. <coughs> Religious people just doesn't get it. It takes the Spirit of God to open eyes before any of us get it to be truthful. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man, and then he makes it worse, and drink his blood. <laughs> Whew, if they were annoyed, they're going to go absolutely ballistic now. For a Jew to drink blood, that's not kosher. They're not going to eat any meat with blood in it. That's disgusting to them unthinkable, anathema. So he's not sparing them, is he? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Ah. The bread and the blood. Wasn't Jesus the Lamb of God? And in the Passover, the Old Testament, when the lamb's blood was shed, didn't they have to roast and eat the lamb? Literally. So that was a picture in the Old Testament of Christ who's the true Passover, who shed his blood and we feast on him. Not literally, but spiritually. In our daily devotions, our communion with Him, we are feeding of Him in a sense. And they didn't get it, and they didn't understand it. But He actually didn't go about to try to explain it to them, He just gave it to them. <laughs> and boy, they were angry. These are the things that really, really upset them. You know, many times Jesus said things that even his disciples didn't understand. Sometimes the parables. And then when they got Jesus on their own, they said, Jesus, what did you actually mean by that? And he explained to them. Because they really wanted to know for the right reason. 
Sometimes he spoke in parables so that only those who really wanted to know would know. And others who would never want to know right over their head. So why am I saying this tonight? In the light of events this past week, in the light of what will keep recurring in these days that we're living in, where Christianity is being squeezed and marginalized and challenged and ridiculed. We're going to have to understand that we're going to have to toughen up. And Jesus was tough. I never even got on to the apostles. Some of the things they said and did, (laughs) they got whipped and beaten and threw in jail for it. And it was the truth. It was only the truth. But the truth is going to cause a collision. Maybe a member of your family. Maybe a workmate. Maybe your boss. Could be a mother or a father. But the truth is going to cause a collision. Jesus said, do you think I've come to bring peace into the world? I came to bring a sword. It'll cause even division within a family. Some have used that, so maybe it already happened. A division within a family because you stood for the truth. If you were a Muslim tonight, if you were a Jew tonight, if you were a Hindu, if you were a Sikh, and you came home and told your parents, I've become a believer in Christ. He is the Lord of my life and my Savior. Can you imagine what would happen? Can you imagine the clash and the collision? Some people are being put to death tonight because of that. In 2,000 years, this word has not changed, and it's not going to change. Because this is the truth. (coughs) Jesus could be gentle, compassionate, merciful, tender, but boy, he could be tough. And he could speak the truth in love, but he could speak it soundly and boldly and confidently, and he let the chips fall where they lie. Because it was the truth. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, in these last days that we're living in, we already see again and again how we're being challenged for our faith. At least in this country, Lord, there's nobody standing outside this building waiting to stone us as we leave tonight. Not yet, anyway. But Lord, there's many nations where that is happening. Where people are literally laying down their lives for Christ and for His sake. Lord, give us the courage and the guts to stand up for you whenever it is required. Help us, Lord, to really, truly believe what we believe. Thank you for the boldness that the Holy Spirit gives. Thank you for the boldness that the apostles had, the early church had. Thank you for the boldness that Christ exhibited. So we give you thanks for these things. Help us to be out and out believers. Not hiding our light under a bushel. But being true to what we truly believe. And in whom we believe. For we ask it in Jesus name.
Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk. You will also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal.